1983, and since our inceptions, we've been singing the current music the psalmist across the board have written. Um, we never began triumph singing old music. I don't mean ever, never, but by and large, our repertoire of worship was always what was current in the moment. So in 1983, we were singing songs that were very current for the moment. 1993, we were still singing songs that were current for 1993. We had forsaken those of 1983. 2003, once again, the psalmists were writing a new sound, a new song was coming forth. We began to shift and sing the song of 2003. We weren't singing the 1993 songs anymore. We were singing the 2003 songs. So here we sit in 2016, and we're singing the current song of the season. It doesn't mean we never sing older songs. It just means the dominant worship repertoire is music of the day, music of the season. It's a part of our culture and what we believe. Now, you know, as, as the years have come and gone and my children have grown, I got my, two of my grandsons here. Uh, Peyton, wave your hand. This is my best bud here, Peyton, and my other best bud, Parker. Raise your hand, buddy. So these little guys have come into being. And uh, time changes, and your hair changes colors, and hopefully doesn't turn loose. And, um, you know, time comes and go. And, and I got to tell you, I have old ears when it comes to musical taste. And I like the sound of the old music better. It's not better. I just like it better. It's not more spiritual. I just like it better. And it's because of my age. Strictly an age thing. It's not a spiritual thing. So I deal with wonderful people all the time. They say, why don't we sing the old music? We just felt God more in the old music. Well, that's because your ears are old. <laughs> Just go ahead and admit it. You're, and all you young people laughing at me right now, you're going to get old. And we're going to turn your radio and your car, and you're going to be listening to the oldie goldies. It happens to everybody. So make fun of us now, but it's going to happen to you too. And there's just something about it that the music, when you're in the prime of your life, those developing years, it just sticks with you, and it just sounds better. It just feels better. I mean, I feel the Holy Ghost when I hear certain some old songs. But it's not because they're more spiritual. It's not because they're better. It's just your ears are old, and it touches you deeply about another season in life. So don't ever think, well, these new songs, they just don't have the anointing on them like those old songs did. Come on, outgrow that, man. Outgrow that. Just outgrow it. You know, it, it isn't the style of music, the chord progressions, the tempo, the keys we play them in. It isn't any of that. It's the message that's important. And so I'm shifting your attention to the message away from the tune, the message. The greatest song that's ever been written or sung is Amazing Grace. There's never been a song that even compares with Amazing Grace. For over 200 years, the body of Christ and the world itself has been singing Amazing Grace. And almost every classic artist in the world, at one point in their life, they record Amazing Grace. And, you know, I've heard Amazing Grace sing with the, the, the high church sound. I've heard it sing with a country twang. And I've, I've heard it put to rap and Christian gospel and, and quartet. I mean, everybody sings Amazing Grace. And when they sing it, it comes out according to their own personal culture. It's always good, but it's never about the sound, it's about the message. What has transcended 200 years in a church is not the tempo, not the key, not the chord, not the musical style, it's the message. 
amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. 250 years removed, the world has changed. We've got computers in our pockets, and we're, we're, we're traveling the globe as if it was our own neighborhood. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You see, it's the message that transcends, and it isn't the music. So when we're singing these songs of worship, I'm asking you to consider the message. Connect with the message. At my age, some of the tunes and the, the chord progressions and the way they're put together, it's difficult for me to really connect with the musical part. I, I have to kind of reach up and get it because it's, it's not natural to me. I, I, you know, I'm in another season of life. But the message is what I connect with. The message is what I grasp because, you see, the psalmist have the ability to hear what God is saying in the spirit and translate that into music. And when they do, it's according to their culture, according to their generation, according to the sound of their generation. But the important thing is the message, not the sound. So what I'm asking you to do is to connect with the message. And I thought we'd go through some songs here today that are common to you some of which we've already sung today, and let's look at the message without any music. Let's look at the message and let's hear what you and I are collectively saying to God, what we're collectively crying out to God for without any music. Let's just look at the message. Show me spirit break out. Let's just read the words. This is what we're saying. Spirit, Holy Spirit, break out, break our walls down. Spirit, break out. Heaven, come down. This is the words. This is the message. King Jesus, you're the name we're lifting high. Your glory shaking up the earth and skies. Revival. We want to see your kingdom here. We want to see your kingdom here. This is the cry of the heart from the hearts of God's people. And you and I collectively are saying this as a prayer to God. We're asking God for revival. How many of you want revival? This song is a collective prayer to God for revival. Next, kingdom come. The earth is shaking, chains are breaking as your kingdom comes. Father, let your kingdom come. Mountains have to move. Every chain is loose. God, we declare your kingdom is here. Christians standing strong and standing firm and releasing their faith. Listen to what we're saying. Everyone will see. Fall down at your feet. God, we declare your kingdom is here. What powerful words. What a message that you and I are saying. And the words, the music really doesn't matter. It's the message. It's the cry of our hearts to God. Everyone will see. Fall down at your feet. God, we declare your kingdom is here. Next, reaching. Here's a great song that was written here at Triumph came right out from our pastors here on staff. I give you all of me, Lord. Take my heart completely. Surrounded by your presence, Lord, it feels like heaven. That's heart cry. That's what we desire. Every chain is broken just by words you've spoken. I'm captured by your grace. 
as your freedom overtakes me. Thank God, thank God. So I'm asking you to focus on the words because it becomes a prayer that we collectively pray. Let's move on. The song more. Father, we ask you for your presence. Here on earth we call down heaven. We're calling out for more. We're calling out for more. How many of you want more of his presence? All right? When we sing this song, that's what we're calling for. Words make a difference. Words make a difference. If words didn't make a difference, we could sing any song we want to sing. Just pick one off the radio, country or rap or pop, pop rock or whatever you want. If words don't matter, but if they matter, we need to read the words and realize this is the cry our hearts are making out to God. So let your glory fill this place. How many of you want the glory of God to fill this house? God, saturate us and overtake us. There is nothing we want more than more of you. Next. We've waited for this day. We've gathered in your name. We're calling out to you. Your glory like a fire awakening desire will burn our hearts with truth. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. Open up the heavens. We want to see you. Open up the floodgates like a mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. Can you say amen? So I've taken the precious Sunday morning time to talk to you about what we're singing, why we're singing it. If you want to know what's going to happen in 2016, just read the words of the songs we're singing because they're entirely prophetic. Even when preachers aren't preaching the message and churches are not publicly saying it, the psalmists have invaded churches, not this one, but other churches that are not crying out for revival. They're not crying out for the Holy Spirit, and yet the psalmists are getting the people to say it collectively. And I say this with fear and trembling, but by and large, what you're singing out there from week to week is more powerful than what we may be preaching right here. The beautiful thing is, what you're singing is your pastor is preaching, and we're in this together, and we're saying the same very thing. And so what did we look for in 2016? We want the floodgates of heaven to open up over us, to saturate us and fill us with his glory and for his kingdom to come. Can you say amen? Thank the Lord. All right. I want to show you, um, keep moving here today. I know I'm covering a lot of space. I'm watching my clock, but I want to cover several things. Um, I want to cover several things today. I really believe that God has marvelous, more than wonderful things in store for the church and for this country. I believe that revival is imminent. Bishop Garlington prophesied that the next wave of God would dwarf anything we saw in the 20th century. And the 20th century was a, a 100 years of the outpouring of the Spirit. From the beginning to the end, it was the greatest century of the church outside the first century. So I'm expecting great and wonderful things. There is a, a global shift that is taking place in the church, especially the Church of America. Um, a global shift that is pushing the people of God into more uh, aggressive 
outreach, aggressive um, ministry as a body than ever before. I want to show you where this happened in the book of Acts and bring it to us today. Please turn to, to Acts chapter 8, and I want to begin reading in verse chapter 4, uh, yes, through verse 8. Here we go. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, let me give you a little history. This is chapter 8. In chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out. In that same chapter, it says that favor was on the people and multitudes came. In Acts chapter 4, thousands came to Christ in a single day. And great favor was on the people and the church grew exponentially over the first year or so. The church grew exponentially. Thousands upon thousands came to Christ and the city had favor with the church. But you know, favor is not a static thing. Favor can shift. Public approval can shift. We're seeing public approval shift against the church in this day we live in. There was a day that, that uh, the church of the Lord Jesus had carte blanche in this nation. That's not true anymore. The, the pendulum of favor has shifted away from us. Well, that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. For the first few years, they had unbelievable favor, and then suddenly that favor turned into persecution, and Stephen became our first martyr in Acts chapter 7. Now, as a result, people were forced to flee for their lives, their safety, and the, the body of Christ was scattered everywhere. But Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, says to us that every place that believers were scattered, they preached the word. To shorten this segment, let me just say that when these believers were scattered as they fled for their lives and looking for a peaceful place to live, work, and raise their family, everywhere they went, they preached the gospel, shared their faith with others, and churches were raised up. And what the devil intended to snuff out the church with suddenly became the expansion of the church. So the church was no longer just centered around Jerusalem, but now everywhere the people went, churches were being built. And what the devil intended to do evil with suddenly turned out to be an instrument of God to spread the gospel everywhere. But remember, it was not just the apostles. The history teaches us that the apostles remained at the headquarters in Jerusalem for 10 to 12 years after the day of Pentecost. So even though the people were scattered, the apostles stayed anchored in Jerusalem. Somewhere after the first decade of the church, the apostles would begin to be sent out to different continents of the world and share the gospel. And the center of the church would shift from the city of Jerusalem that no longer was receptive to the gospel. It would be shifted to the city of Antioch that you read about where they were first called Christians. But there was a, a dynamic in that exponential growth of the church. First was persecution, rejection by the public, and secondly was that everywhere anybody went that was a believer in Christ, they shared their faith and did the work of God. The strategic shift that I'm talking to you about this morning is shifting the, the bulk of ministry from the pulpit to the pew. Activating the people of God where that wherever they go, for whatever reason they go there for, that they're sharing their faith and they're becoming a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the fact is, we understand that people win most, when a person, immediately after a person is saved, they win people to Christ. But after they've been saved for a while, 
that process breaks down because they've already witnessed to their world and shared it with their friends, the people they work with, and their family. And either those people have come to Christ or they have not, but they pretty well fished out that pond. And so if you don't expand your world and reach out to new people, pretty soon you're not winning anybody to Christ and you're not sharing any Christ with anyone because your world has become sealed off. When I was a little guy, my uncle used to carry me bass fishing up in East Texas. And, of course, I was a little guy, and it was all fun and having a, had a great time. But I, I know we'd, we'd go uh, bass fishing, and my uncle, he'd stop by a certain little tree stump every time. And, boy, just almost every time, he'd pull a nice bass out by, beside that tree stump. So, I mean, that's the first place we went with that tree stump because we knew there was a fish there every time. But after a while, we realized he wouldn't catch any fish at the tree stump anymore. And so he'd just kind of go by there real quick, throw it out there once, pull it in, and just keep going with the next one because we'd already fished out. We'd caught all the fish around that stump. Now, he knew someday there'd be more fish around that stump, but for right now, they were gone because he caught them. We ate them. That was it. And you got to realize that your life like that and your personal ministry is like that. Pretty soon, you've witnessed everybody in your family. You've witnessed everybody at your job. You've witnessed all your neighbors. And pretty soon you fished out all, the, all, you fished out all the, the stump. And there's no more fish there at this point. It doesn't mean there won't be fish in the future. It doesn't mean that you hadn't sown seed that won't come up in the future. It doesn't mean you won't ever do anything. It just means you, if you're going to be effective as a personal witness of Christ, you're going to have to go to a new stump. You're going to have to reach some new people. You see, each of us have a world that we revolve in a network of family and friends, and our worlds overlap. But you have people in your circle that I never meet, never know, and never will know. And I have people in my circle you don't know and never will know. So we all have our circle of influence. Now, if, if we all fish out our circle of influence, and our circle of influence never getting any bigger, we're not reaching out to new people outside our circle, pretty soon each of us here in this building, we fished out all the circles. There's no more fish around the stump. So churches level off. Churches grow when we reach out and get new networks of family and friends. Someone here reaches and gets someone that's kind of outside their network and brings them in. They get saved, and then that person starts witnessing to their, their new circle, their new network. So if we're going to grow this church this year and we're going to see us reach our goals and make a greater impact, then we're going to have to reach some new people that's going to represent new entire networks of people that we can reach as a church. we got to get outside the little group of people that we revolve around. Your world. This is a strategic shift that's taking place all across the body of Christ. And if we can make that shift here, we can see this building filled up multiple times on the weekend and we can radically increase uh, the impact that you and I are making. But we're going to have to shift from putting everything on the pastor and start accepting responsibility for ourselves. Now, uh, Pastor Ryan and Jen been here doing it been here a year. They've been doing really good. Thank God for that. You've got to have a leader. You've got a leader and everything's right. But it's not up to them to do everything. It's not up for them to reach everybody. Just because you have full-time pastors here that are giving their lives for you in this church doesn't mean that they do everything. It doesn't take your responsibility off to reach your world for Christ. So I just thought I'd take a few moments and encourage you and challenge you to, to become a witness and do what they did in the book of Acts where it simply says, everywhere they went, they preached 
And they testified, and they won people to Christ. And it became exponential in growth as a church. If you want to make this shift, there's a few things you can do. I'm going to make this real simple and easy. It's not hard. You don't have to become a spiritual giant. You don't have to go to a seminary. You don't have to pray two hours a day. But you do have to do a few simple things. First of all, read through the Bible. Read through the Bible. Uh, this year, we're reading through the entire Bible. And if you hadn't jumped on board, please do so right now. How many of you are reading through the Bible day after day? I see some hands up there. Fantastic. Thank you for reading with us. Now, I'm using the version. It's an app on my phone. It's an app. And so every, every day, I go to my phone, and I pull up my version app, and I read the portion that I need to read on that day. And the really good thing about it is, uh, one thing, it's right there every day. I don't have to look for it, search for it. And I've always got my phone, and so it's all, I've always got it with me wherever I am. It's on my phone. It's right there waiting on me. It's a wonderful tool. Secondly, you can choose your own version of the Bible. Like you may be reading a New International Version. You may read a New King James. This year I'm reading the New Living Translation. Whatever you want to read, it's on there. And you can read the translation that you want to read this year. It's a great thing. And so um, you read a little from the Old, a little from the New, and then some Psalms and Proverbs. It's just absolutely great. And if you do that every day in 365 days, you'll have the entire Bible read. The other feature I really like about this version thing is uh, you can hit this button and it'll read it to you. And the, the greatest way for me to learn is let me read it with my eyes and then let them read it to me as I'm reading it. So that I'm, look, I'm reading it with my eyes, but I'm listening to it as they read it to me. And every once in a while, I, I, I wasn't able to read it that morning. And so uh, I'm driving down the car, the, the, I'm driving to the church, and boom, I just hit it, and it reads it to me. What this does is eliminate all my excuses. When you get this version app, you have no excuses. And so maybe if you need to listen to it on the way to school, when you're taking your kids to school or your drive time, it's easy just to hit your phone and read through the Bible. So if you want God to use you, start reading your Bible. Secondly, in, increase your prayer time. How much ever you're praying now, just increase it. Just increase whatever you're doing now. Just pray more. Everybody say pray more. Um, and you don't even have to pray a lot more. Just pray some more. And learn how to use precious moments because we're all extremely busy. None of us have time. We're all fighting calendars and schedules and deadlines. That's the way we live in America. It's, it's a fast-paced world. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's just fast-paced. If you're a mom with kids, it's even more fast-paced. You're a dad working a couple jobs, raising a family. Every minute's taken up. And so you've got to learn how to pray in short segments throughout the day. I personally feel that drive time is a gift from God to all of us that spend so much time in our cars because we can pray while we're driving. And uh, you've got to learn how to catch prayer times uh, when your kids are napping. You've got to pray, catch prayer times when it fits into your day. And just uh, short segments of prayer throughout the day is much more going to be much more effective in the long run than trying to block it all together and say, I'm going to pray one hour. Well, you know, the devil can eat up that hour just like that, can, can break your schedule, and pretty soon you didn't pray. But if you learn how to pray incrementally through the day, five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes when you can squeeze it in, it helps you to walk in the Spirit all day long. It helps you stay connected like spiritual Wi-Fi all day long. You're connected with the Holy Spirit. And instead of trying to be all spiritual for one short segment in the day, if you learn how to pray throughout the day, and if God has, wants to use you, you're not, he's not that far off. You're not that disconnected. Your mind's still, because you just prayed a few minutes ago. It wasn't a long prayer, but you got connected. And now God wants to use you. Somebody's come up in your world, and, and you're ready. 
because you're walking in the Spirit and you're praying throughout the day in short segments. Because what happens is you and I as human beings, we can compartmentalize our spirituality. We can get real spiritual on Sunday morning. But Monday, it's like it never happened. In the same way in a day, you can get real spiritual for morning prayer. The rest of the day, you're just carnal as you can be. I mean, we can compartmentalize stuff. But if you learn how to pray a little bit throughout the day and, and, and walk in the Spirit and pray when you can pray and throughout the day you're in contact, then when someone comes in your path that needs the Lord and needs a prayer and needs encouragement, you're ready because you're in the Spirit. Amen, amen. Boy, that was good, Pastor. I appreciate you preaching that to me. I needed that. So when you increase your prayer time, you spread it out through the day, you'll be able to walk in the Spirit. Then care about people and pray for them. You know, you're never going to be effective for Christ in your own personal ministry if you don't care about people. This is the people business, period. If you don't care about people, if you're not sensitive to people, if you're more concerned about your own affairs as someone else's, God can't use you. You know, Jesus was full of compassion. The apostles were full of compassion. The first church was full of love and compassion and generosity. Now, you know, I use prayer as a tool of evangelism. Prayer is my main, main go-to instrument for winning people to Christ. I pray for them. And uh, I, I promise them to pray, I, I do pray, and I see God, things, see God do things in their lives. Like not long ago, um, in some unbelievers that I'm uh, involved with, you know, I said to them, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray and ask God to do this for you and that for you. And they kind of chuckled like, that was kind of novel, just kind of chuckled. I don't care if they chuckle or not. See, my prayer isn't, print, isn't predicated on their faith. My prayer is predicated on my faith. They can make fun of me all they want, but when I pray, God hears. And so um, I prayed, God heard, and they were forced to come back and say, well, I, 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 I guess that prayer you prayed must have worked, Pastor. I said, yep, sure did. And that's how it works with me. And I, I use my, I have a very powerful prayer life, and my prayer life is my best tool of ministry, my best tool of evangelism. So after a while, they quit chuckling. They start saying, Pastor, would you pray about this? I say, yes, sir, I sure will. But you've got to create an identity where you have a prayer life and that you know how to touch God and you're not ashamed of the fact that you pray and God hears. If you've got an identity that doesn't include prayer, you're not ever going to be able to do this. You see, one thing that I'm real, I'm real careful about is I'm not like Mr. Spiritual when I'm with you. When I'm with unbelievers, I'm somebody else. No, what you see is what you get. This is it. Whatever I do here, I do there. And uh, I use the same vocabulary. I present myself in exactly the same way. Uh, I, I, you know, you just can't tell nasty jokes one second and offer prayer in the next. You can't be mean and ugly, say ugly words one minute and say praise the Lord the next. You can't do that. You have to have one image. You have to have one identity. So, I encourage you just to establish an identity. I'm a Christian. I go to church, read my Bible, pay my tithes, and I pray. And I try my best to help people in need. The way I help them is if I find out they're struggling in their marriage or struggling in their finances or they're facing something physically, I initiate prayer for them. If they'll let me, I'll pray on the spot. And if it's a little too much, I'll pray in private until they get a little 
accustomed to the idea, then I'll move right in there and pray it on the spot. So be careful. Don't ask me to pray for you in Walmart. Because in Walmart, I'll be praying for you. Because I have lots of people ask me for prayer, and I can't remember everybody. So I'll say, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. I walk off forget about it. I just get this huge load of guilt on me because I promised all these people I'd pray, and I can't remember. So the way I do that is twofold. Number one, I pray for them right on the spot. Wherever we are, you ask me for prayer, I say, let's join hands. They're like, you need to be embarrassed. And the other way I do it, I use my phone. And so, uh, like, say, you say, Pastor, I'm going to have surgery uh, Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock. So I put my phone in there, put me an alarm, and I put your name in there, and at 7 o'clock, I get alarm. So-and-so is going to have surgery at 8 o'clock. And when that alarm goes off, whatever I'm doing, I stop and I pray for that person. Because I can't remember it all. Maybe you can, I can't. i got to have help. So first of all, I pray on the spot, pray right then, and get it over with. I've done what I promised I would do. God's heard my prayer, and it's settled. And then when I have something coming up, I put it on there. And if, and, if, and if somebody's going to court, I put it on my phone. If they're dealing with something for five or six days in a row, every day at 7 o'clock, my phone goes off. It says, pray for so-and-so. They're going through something. Whatever it is, it's extended. How many of you got a phone? Sure you got a phone. If you're breathing, you have a phone. <laughs> so use your phone. It helps you to be more effective. Maybe you can remember everything. That's good. I can't. And so I use my phone to help me. And so care about people and pray for them. Can you say amen? Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to drop way down here and skip a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I've enjoyed being with you. And, uh, but I've got a few more important things to say, and I promise you I'll be done close on time or very close to it. So when you're, when you're reaching people for Christ, we're, we're talking about this strategic shift, awakening the sleeping giant of the church and getting the people touching their world for Christ and ministering to people through love and compassion, praying for everyone. The first thing you do is not invite them to church. You ask them if you can pray for them and whatever they're going through. It may be the biggest opportunity or the biggest problem they've ever had, but pray for them. First thing you do is don't ask them to give their heart to the Lord. Win them to yourself. And then ask them if they'd like to be a Christian. Okay, <clears throat> so it's a strategic shift. So when you're looking at your world, you know that not everyone that you interact with is ready to give their hearts to the Lord. You know not everyone is at the place. You just know that. Well, first of all, I try not to decide who is and who isn't. Because what if I miss it? What if I make a mistake? I think they're not ready, but really they are. Well, I messed up because I predetermined they weren't ready. So I try not to try to decide who's ready and who's not ready. I just let them make the decision. So be careful about making, drawing conclusions about people that you really is not based on fact. But we know that not everybody's ready today. So we just keep loving them and praying for them and winning them to ourselves and sharing Christ in a positive way with them until they are ready. But we have identified some very ripe harvest fields. Remember how Jesus said, look on the fields, they're already ripe, ready for harvest. We believe that around you and I every day there are people that are ripe. That means they are at a point when they're ready to hear the gospel. They are ripe, ready to hear the gospel, ready to make a move for Christ. So we have to identify who is ripe and who we're waiting to get ripe. And uh, to do that individually is real tricky, but
but we have, a, we have identified some general categories. I want to show you some general categories of people that are probably going to be the most receptive to the gospel. First of all is the next generation. How many of you got saved the first time before you were age 18? Please raise your hand. Look across this room. Almost everybody in this room got saved the first time before age 18. The ripest harvest field is our young. If you're raising children and grandchildren, the best thing you can do is to get them in the house of God and get that seed in their heart. They are the most ripe harvest field. The best thing you and I can do as a church is have a great children's ministry like it's going on right now to make sure that when our children come in, we're putting the gospel and the love of Jesus in their heart. We also know that the next generation is so viable. You know, young couples get married regardless of how they live, but now they're getting married. They're raising families. They want to do it right. They want to have a healthy, wholesome household. And so they're ripe to, get, to give their hearts to the Lord. So the next generation is extremely viable for the gospel. The second category that you're looking for, like who, who's, who's most likely, who, who should I be focused on? Next generation, secondly, is new move-ins. In Texas, our economy is so strong. There's such an economic engine here in Texas. Thank God for it. We don't deserve it. God's just been good to us, and uh, we've had some good leadership, and it makes a big difference. People are moving in from all over the world to get to Texas because their money goes further. They live a better life. It's safer, happier, healthier. Make, make money, and money goes somewhere. So everybody's moving to Texas. Now, when you move into a new area, you're looking for a new house, a new salon, a new dentist, a new CPA, a new church, a new pastor, a fresh beginning, new friends, do it right this time. Everybody that comes into the area, they're in this new frame of mind, new friends, new church, new start. New beginning, do it right this time. I mean, it's just their whole mental frame is, is so conducive to the gospel. When I see them building these homes as fast as they can, every rooftop represents a family that needs a pastor and a church family. Every single new rooftop needs a new church. You go to an older part of town, you have people there that are older in age, uh, they've lived there for 20, 30, 40 years. They're not looking for a new barber. They're not looking for a new place to get their hair done. They're not looking for a new school. They're not looking for a new church. They all belong to some church. They never go to it, but they belong to it. And all those questions are answered in their lives. Well, you can already see their whole mental frame is not conducive to the gospel. New move-ins, folks, that, that's our that's our greatest hope is new move-ins because they're in a mental frame that makes them open to coming and being a part of our church. Does that make sense to you? People in a crisis. When everything's going right in somebody's life, they very rarely get saved. They very rarely want to come to church. They think, hey, man, it's working for me. I got my job. I got my marriage. I got my kids. I got my health. It's all working. Don't change anything. We're going along life just like we want it. They don't get saved during that time. But you let that marriage fall apart or something happen with those kids or lose a job, all of a sudden they're like radar screen, the radar antennas go up, and, man, they're looking for help. Like, my life's not working, and I need somebody to help me make it work. So when you're, when you're moving through your world, your neighbors, your family, your friends, who you work with, people you meet, 
you, you got to have your radar on to, to, to realize who's in a crisis. And they may announce it or they may not, but you're looking for people in a crisis because it's those people that are going to be most likely to hear what you've got to say about the love of Jesus and most receptive to your offer for prayer. Take a man that's making more money than he's ever made in his life. His wife loves him. His kids are all doing good. He's healthy and strong. Ask him if, you want to, if he wants you to pray for him. He's like, what do you want to pray for me for? I got it all together. But ask someone that's struggling in some area of their life. You ask them, can I pray with you about that? They don't even believe in God, don't believe in prayer. But, well, in just in case, yeah, I'll go ahead, just in case. So what I'm saying is people in crisis have always been a ripe harvest field. And the more troubled our world is, the more troubled our families and marriages are, the more ripe the harvest field is for us to share the love of Christ. The last is unfulfilled and unchurched Christians. Unfulfilled Christians. A lot of people going to churches that the churches are just dead. I wish that wasn't the case. I, I wish it wasn't. But there's a lot of churches that the Holy Spirit changed their member, his membership a long time ago. And there's still people there. And, and they're hoping that something happens. There's a lot of unfulfilled Christians today. Many of them are unchurched. What that means is they have a, a walk with God to some level, but at the same time, they don't ever go to church. For whatever reason, they got hurt, they got disappointed, moved into town, never found another one like the old one, whatever, but they just don't go to church. These are the people that are most likely to hear your testimony, most likely to receive your prayer, most likely to accept your invitation to come to church if they're Christian people that are just unchurched. They're just not going to church for some reason. They have a foundation of faith. They just are not walking it out. So this is a great people for you to start witnessing to. So I've given you four great harvest fields. The next generation, new move-ins, people in a crisis, the unchurched Christians around you. And there's lots and lots of them in East Texas, right? So I want to encourage you to keep your antennas up, keep your radar going, and make sure that you are ready for that. I want to go to one last verse, and uh, I'm done. John 7, 37 through 39. John 7, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I want to talk to you about living in the overflow. If you want to be an effective witness for Christ, if you want God to use you in your world, you've got to minister out of the overflow. If, if you're mostly empty, you have nothing to give away. If you're struggling and fighting just to keep your own faith alive, it's hard to help someone else. But God wants us to live in the overflow. Jesus said, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. It, you know, we weren't designed just to be a vessel, but we are designed to be a river that flowed out. We sing a song, and if you'll put the words up for me, it talks about living in the overflow, something like this. I'm blessed, I'm blessed, blessed to be a blessing. I'm blessed, I'm blessed, living in the overflow. Now, you read it with me this time. I'm blessed, I'm blessed, blessed to be a blessing. I'm blessed, I'm blessed, living in the overflow. How many of you want to live in the overflow? I want to live in the overflow. I want to live in the overflow. So I hope today that we've uh, talked to your hearts and uh, have stirred in your desire to be a thriving church full of growing Christians that understand their divine destiny. They're sharing their faith with others. We're making an ever greater impact 
on Angleton and surrounding areas for Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you have done and that you will do. I just know that God has some great and wonderful things for you individually and for this church collectively. Everybody say yes. You can close your Bibles now. <clears throat> Let's stand together. I'm going to ask your pastor to come, and uh, he'll probably want to close with an altar invitation or whatever, but uh, I want to pray a blessing over you before I step down. Father, I thank you for the wonderful men and women of God of this great house, for everyone that you have hand-chosen, selected for this day and hour, and for the work that you're doing here. I pray a blessing on their marriages and their children. I pray a blessing on their physical bodies as well as their career and finances. May your hand of blessing and goodness be upon them all. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use them for your glory. Use them to win men and women to Christ, to reach outside their known world into the, the new regions of ministry that you have for them. Awaken this sleeping giant and loose them into this area with compassion and love and faith and the good news that you gave to us. I pray this on them all in Jesus' name.